Father, I am grateful that you have brought us together on this cold January morning. Um, the sun shining brilliantly off the ice outside reminds us of your love shining off other believers. Um, Lord, I've already experienced your love for me through new friends this morning. I'm grateful for that. Um, Lord, we are just fire-hosed all week with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we need you to revive us, Lord. We need you to get our eyes off of our stuff and selves and back onto the Savior. Lord, we are prone to wander, just like the old hymn says. But I'm thankful that you are a merciful God who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we confess our sins. Lord, I've prepared as hard as I know how. But unless you move, it's nothing but chicken scratch. I pray that you would close my mouth to anything that does not need to be said and will not be helpful. And that the spirit himself would give me things to say I have not even yet thought of or dreamt of. So, Lord, this moment, we ask that the spirit of the living God would make more real than ever the word of God so that we might see the son of God and the love of our father, God. Lord, thank you for this privilege to worship you now through your word. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Well, almost all people, I mean all people, religious people and non-religious people alike, agree, rightly so, on this particular truth. That thinking drives our living. That our belief dictates our behavior. So, for instance, somebody believes that they're dumb and they don't think they can pass a test. That belief, that thinking will lead to the behavior of probably not trying too hard on the test, maybe not even showing up for the test. Or maybe somebody's been told their entire lives from a child up, you're going to be nothing but a failure. Right? And that thinking gets ingrained into them and becomes a self-fulfilled prophecy by way of living as a failure. Now, conversely, great uh, athletic coaches, for instance, have the ability to instill in their teams the idea that they can beat anybody. And great coaches, I'm looking at one right now, Jordan, coach at... Michigan basketball, Ann Arbor, or not Ann Arbor, uh, sorry about that. The even bigger one, Dearborn, right? Great coaches inspire their squads to overachieve, right? So, for instance, if you're a hockey fan, and if you're not, there's something wrong with you. One of the greatest victories ever was in 1984, when Herb Brooks, the coach, took um, a crew of amateurs of college hockey players just weeks before the Olympics at Lake Placid, and led them to a gold medal defeating the team of the generation, the Red uh, Army uh, team from the Soviet, old Soviet Union. A team, by the way, the Red Army team, had, had beaten soundly NHL all-star teams and had even beaten that Olympic amateur team 
in double digits at Madison Square Garden just 10 days earlier. They overachieved. He put something in them that caused them to believe they could actually do something beyond their natural capacity. So all I'm trying to say is thinking, and religious and non-religious people agree with this, thinking drives living. Belief drives behavior. All you got to do is Google one of those two phrases and you will be hit with just tons of articles and blog posts along those lines. Now, I should warn you, most of those articles will be seasoned with a hearty portion of that French ingredient garbage. Okay, I'm just telling you, like Norman Vincent Peale, right? The power of positive thinking. If you just believe it, you can believe it into existence. Eh, I'm not so sure about that. And, and by the way, every springtime, May, June, all across our country, well-meaning seniors deliver graduation speeches in which they parrot this idea. You can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. Now, I appreciate that sentiment, but I could have wanted to be an NBA basketball player to the moon and back. If you've ever shot hoops with me, you know that was never in the cards for me. I could have wanted to be a quantum physicist and... No, uh, Helen might be able to do that kind of stuff. I can't, okay? But even in some of the teachings of guys like Norman Vincent Peale, they have tapped into this truth. That belief does drive behavior. That thinking does drive living. Now, I want to be more specific this morning. What I mean to say is this. Who you think you are will determine how you will live your life. Or to put it succinctly or perhaps sermonically, identification determines direction. In other words, who you identify yourself to be is going to determine the direction you're going to go with your life. So for the, for the people that are just stepping into this series, we are doing a short series before we get to 1 Corinthians on this idea of how to grow in 2020. And you're going to have to say some yes and you're going to have to say some no. All right? So week one, what passage of scripture did we look at, family? Psalm 1, yeah. So the idea was saturation leads to satisfaction. You got to say no to saturating yourself in the world. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but says yes to the word of God. His delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he does meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by streams of water and go on and on. What you d- decide to saturate yourself with will determine whether you have real satisfaction, shalom, peace, not being weathered from the heartbreaks of life, but whether there will be shalom and peace and wholeness. Last week we looked at this. Presentation determines Transformation. Who you present yourself to is what you're going to look at. What you look at most, you will look like most. Right? So we've got to say no to being conformed to the world and yes to being transformed more into the image of Christ. How do we do that? Every week, every morning, at zero dark 30, whenever we wake up, we show up for formation. We present our bodies a living sacrifice to God. And we do so not to earn his favor. We have it in Christ. We do it because, the text says, of the mercies of God. So presentation determines transformation. Now, finally this morning, Tristan again has, we'll close out the series next week. I want us to see this truth 
Identification determines direction. What the world agrees on, religious and non-religious alike, God already told us. Paul taps into that in Colossians 3, does he not? He says, if you have been raised with Christ, do what? Seek the things that are above. In other words, if this is who you are in Christ, this is the direction you should go. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And all we're going to do this morning, really simply, we're going to look at this text from two directions. First of all, we're going to see how it puts on blast, gloriously so, our new identification, our new identity in Christ. And then second of all, we're going to see, again, this maxim that once you get that identity, that new identity, it can't help but catapult you into a new direction. Y'all with me? All right, so let's look at our new identification. You will notice our text begins with with what word? If. If. Oh, man. Now, that word could be translated um, since. So if you have a New Living Translation, which I love reading out of that version of the Bible, it says, since you have been raised from the dead. But probably the most common translation would be if. And you got to admit, when you read if, it forces us to pause and just kind of ask the question, well, have I been raised with Christ, right? So can I ask you a question? Have you repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Believing he is who he said he is, God, and could do what he said he would, Take away the sins of all who would believe. And that he did the Heisman on sin, death, hell, and Satan on the third day. And that he forgives all who turn to him in humble, repentant faith. I just want to ask you, have you done that? Amen. We got one person who here asked. We got some work to do, right? (laughs) Now, I want you to know that if you've done that by the grace of God, What your primary identity now is. Now, your primary identity is not your gender, though that matters. Your primary identity is not your ethnicity, though that matters. Both of those are assigned and designed by God. And by the way, God does not mispackage or mislabel, okay? Those those things are important. Your primary identity is this. In Christ, that is who you primarily are. He read Colossians, neither, you know, barbarian, Scythian, he goes on, right? Galatians, the collateral uh, uh, cognate passage says this. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor, nor female, but Christ is all and in all those who have trusted Christ. That's your primary identity. You are in Christ. Now, Paul, master teacher, Knowing that repetition is the mother of all learning kind of repeats himself a lot. So if I repeat myself, forgive me. It's not just because I'm old, all right? Some 164 times, he tells the readers of his epistles, baby, if you've trusted Christ, you are in Christ. That's who you are. Now, we love in the church to parrot phrases, don't we? 
Well, what does it mean I'm in Christ? This old British guy, I think he's passed away. His name was John Stott. He says, when you think about being in Christ, don't think of, about it being like tools in a, you know, a toolbox or clothes in a closet. Think of um, how a limb is part of a body or a branch is part of a tree. Aren't those both biblical analogies, by the way, biblical metaphors for our position in Christ? Some of you, um, most of you probably, wherever you work or you go to school, you have an identity card, right? It say such and such school and then your name or such, you know, maybe you work at Quicken Loans. I've seen some of y'all, it says Quicken Loans and then you got your name. If you're in Christ, you have a spiritual identity card called in Christ. And, and, and by the way, just the metaphors I gave you, I wish I had time to explore this, I don't, of a limb being part of a bigger body and a branch being part of a bigger tree says something about how we're supposed to be connected to each other, right? And that's why our mission as a church is to restore through relationship. First, we're restored through the blood of the cross with our Father, and then through that same work of Jesus, we're restored brother and sister one to another, all right? But what I want to dive into through the text is four dynamic ways we are in Christ. Four powerful ways we are connected to Christ. One of them, two of them took place in the past with, with continuing effects. One of them is taking place right now. And one of them is gloriously going to take place in the future. So, so let's just look at the text and let God talk to us. First of all, what does it mean to be in Christ, this new identification you, it says, we're just going to go chronologically, so I'm going to drop down to verse 3. You have what? Died. You have died. And what is implied here, Romans 6 makes explicit. We died with who? We died with Christ. Romans chapter 6 and verse 3 says, Don't you know that when you were baptized, you were baptized into Christ's death. Now, he is not saying baptism saves you, by the way. You just look at the weight of scripture. You can be baptized till every tadpole in the pond knows your name, data, rank, and social security number. You're just going to come up a wet sinner. What saves us is faith in Jesus. All right? But the Bible talks about baptism as faith because nobody got baptized in that context unless they were really in, right? Unless they had really exercised faith. So it's a way, a shorthand of talking about faith. And in the mystery of conversion, when you place your faith in Jesus, guess what? You died with him. Now, there's a little difference. Jesus died for your sin. But when you are united in the likeness of his death, which is what we say at baptism, you died to the power of sin. Romans 6, 6 goes on to say in that miraculous thing that happens in conversion that your old self was crucified with him, nailed to that cross. In order that, here's, here's the in order that, you might no longer be enslaved to sin. But now knowledge is power, right? God wants us to know about the inheritance we have. What does it mean? So he goes on to Romans 6, 12-ish to say something to the effect of, now, now then, listen, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to righteousness because you died with Christ to the power of sin. I read something pretty fascinating years ago about how they're able to chain up 
massive multi-ton elephants in circuses and zoos and when they're on the road. Because an elephant, there's no chain that can hold an elephant. It would break it like Samson's twine, right? But what they do is soon after that elephant is born, they chain the baby elephant to a stake or a post. And it doesn't have the strength at that point to, to snatch its leg off and, and, and break that chain. After a, a while, it stops trying to do that. As it grows, that same chain could be broken just like that. But it's been conditioned to think it will never be anything but chained to that post. And you need to know that Jesus Christ broke the back of the power of sin if you have trusted him because your old self was crucified. Sin can still yell at you and say, hey, I taste great. Come and try me. But it actually has no real authority. There's the word over you. You died with Christ. That's who you are. Second of all, verse one, you have been raised with Christ. Before you died to sin, you were dead in sin. Nothing but a spiritual cadaver. No spiritual heartbeat. We were born dead in transgressions and sins, right? Utterly spiritually dead, very much physically alive, yes, but dead. Dead to real spiritual things. Love that song that we sing every once in a while. I think it's by Sovereign Grace. It goes something like, um, I was blinded by my sin. Had no ears to hear your voice. Did not know your love within. Had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life. Opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son. And it goes on. Listen. The Holy Spirit in the, in the miraculous work of conversion gave you the kiss of life. And open up your eyes to see your sin for what it is and the Savior for who he is, willing and able to save anyone who would come. And the Bible says this is such a radical thing that takes place. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things are passing away and all things are becoming new. Do you know that you are so much in Christ that right now, though you are right here, according to Ephesians 2, you're also somewhere else. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places, it says in Ephesians 2. Now, maybe you're hearing that and thinking like I can. I often don't feel so raised down here in this hot mess. Huh? I mean, I just think of myself physically. Um. My hair went on vacation many years ago. I mean, I could grow it out, but I would look like a monk, and I'm not Catholic, so that wouldn't work. My eyes are dimming. I have to buy these $1 family dollar specials, and my brain is dimming, so I always lose them, so I got like 10 of these in different places. I never, sometimes I start a service, and I just ask my son, where are they? He pointed to my head. That was on top of my head. My brain's dimming. My numbers are dwindling. That is the number of my days. The grave is waiting for me. I'm going to be 51 next month. I know. And Valerie looks at me like, oh. hasn't Arpith told you and taught you you should not sit in the front row? All right, all right, all right. Yeah, thank you. So how can you say I've been raised, right? Well, let's go to the next thing that we are in Christ. We died to the power of sin. We have been raised to spiritual life. Third of all, 
Verse 3. Our lives are now what? Hidden with Christ and God. Oh, this, this, is, this is beautiful. This is beautiful right here. Now, there, there's probably a couple layers, so let me, let me unpack two. Number one, there is the idea of protection and security and care. It's really tapping into an Old Testament illustration of God's care, hiding in God. Psalm 27, verse 5 says something to the effect of, um, in the day of trouble, he will hide me, right? He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. I was listening to somebody on the sex and they said, you are tucked in Christ. And if nothing can touch Christ, guess what? Nothing can touch you. That's what Jesus taught. He says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. And then he goes on to say, my father who is greater than all, greater than all who gave them to me. No one is able to pluck them out of his hand. So, like, here you are in Jesus' hand, boom, clenched. And Jesus is in the Father's hand, so you're doubly protected. You are hid in Christ with God. Beautiful imagery. But I think there's another layer of meaning. The word hidden is the word from which we get the word cryptic. Now, what does cryptic mean? Cryptic means concealed, uh, hidden, or mysterious. Yeah, 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 yeah. The world ought to see something different in us as followers of Christ, right? But the world can't quite put its finger on why we're different other than simply resorting to that junk drawer term, well, they're religious, right? They can't see that the way we live it's not because we're trying at the end of the day to conform to a religious system, but because we are connected to a risen Savior. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches and the sap of the Spirit is moving through us so that we live differently. The world can't see that. Sam Storms, he wrote, there is an element of mystery in the rationale and motivation of the Christian life. Why does one man refuse to exploit an opportunity for financial gain when another one so easily justifies circumventing the law? Why does one young lady steadfastly resist the sexual advances of a boyfriend when so many yield without a second thought? There is a very real sense in which the life of a believer is an enigma to the world. Something under us is under concealment. Something in us is under concealment, hidden to the person who does not know Jesus. They don't know the power that we have to live the new life that we're living. Amen. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Now, here, here, here's another way. This is yet future. According to verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him, What? In glory. When he comes back. When he comes back. When he comes back. Fully. Finally. Totally. Decisively. Conclusively. 
instantaneously, boom, transformed. But you got to get this. You got to get this. It's not just that you are going to see his glory. In a very real sense, you are going to be his glory. Huh? You're going to be it. That's what this text is saying. You will appear with him in glory. This is who you are already. When you are unveiled, who you really are to the world will be seen at his glorious, great and second appearing. I I, I just got to make this point. You are not just going to be engulfed by increasing radiance of, of his splendor and glory. You are going to be expressions of that glory. In other words, you are going to make it. This is like another version of Romans 28. Everything's past tense. For those whom he foreknew, he did also predestinate. Those whom he predestinated, he also what? Called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's in the Greek and the aorist tense. Past tense, decisive action. How can he say, I'm still here, I ain't glorified yet. The reason God can say is because it's so certain it's going to happen. He can talk about it in past tense. Huh? You will appear with him in glory. Now, when I was in college, I was in fraternity, and I would not recommend a lot, maybe most of the things we did, okay? Who, who here was in a fraternity, by the way? Raise your hand. I see a few, a few guilty people out there, too, right? right? Mine was Lambda Chi Alpha. We did a, we did a few things that, that were good. When I was a pledge, which is just such a sweet time of fellowship, not, um, they would have us do certain events. Team building events, character building events. This one really was, though. Um, I think it was a Friday night, and they said, why don't you show up? No, not why. Show up at the fraternity house, I don't know, six or seven. And what they did is they let us. So, so I went to William & Mary, which is Williamsburg, Virginia. There's the colonial park. There's a state park. There's the city itself. There's a lake. So there, it's, it's a pretty expansive area. And what they did is. They led us, like on this wild goose chase, across Greater Williamsburg. We would go to some destination, say a graveyard or a park or the edge of a lake, and there would be one of the brothers in the fraternity who would deliver uh, some kind of word, exhortation, speech, and then he would point to a box, and we would go pick up that box, and I'm telling you, they must have put like 45-pound weights. These were heavy boxes. And we went from point to point, crisscrossing, all over Williamsburg, carrying these really heavy boxes. And we thought, well, this isn't going to last all night. Certainly they're going to end at 10 o'clock. No, no. 11 o'clock. No. Well, midnight. That's a good time to stop. No. 1 a.m. I mean, all night. It, it definitely was filtering and exposing character. Finally, 7 a.m. rolls around and they lead us on this long lane fraternity row. Our house was at the end. Yes, we're going to make it. We're home. And actually, when we turned the corner, we could see the house. Uh, you could see the smoke gloriously rising from the grills. You could see the drinks being poured. You could hear the music being blared. And, and the brothers were waving us on. Yes, yes, great job, great job, great job. Finally, we can unstrap and relax and celebrate. They gave us a little head fake. Once you jumped up on the porch, you made your way into the large first room floor, which is where we have our meetings. And man, their tone changed like that. They started yelling at us, keep running, keep running. And we actually had to run through the front, front, uh, 
first floor, out the back, and we did that for several more hours. Now, it, in this case, it was a good thing. We end up, those boxes were full of food goods and tons of stuff like that, and we dropped it off on the porch of, of a needy family. So that was a good exercise, but I'm going to tell you, God is not a God of head faking. God isn't going to say, you're here. No, you're not. Come on in. Nope. Get out. Uh-uh. When God comes back in glory in Christ, he will receive you. There will be a celebration. You will not only see his glory, you're going to be his glory in a sense. Now, I just, I'm, all I'm trying to tell you is this is who you are in Christ. This is who we are in Christ. You died to the power of sin. You've been raised in newness of spiritual life. Your life right now is hidden in Christ with God. You're protected and there's a power. And one day you are going to be glorified and the battle will be done. No wonder he says when Christ who is whose life? Our life, your life. People all the time say, you know, like my family's my life. I've heard of people saying hunting is my life or art is my life or sports is my life or my job is my life. Listen, all those are good in their different ways, but none of them. Listen, may, may we say, oh, Christ is my life. May people look upon us and say that person has a lot of interest and that's really cool. But I can tell at the core of their being, Christ is their life. And maybe the thing that crystallizes this idea of our fourfold identity is Galatians 2.20 when he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I do live a life. The life which I now live, I live in the flesh by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Identification. Man, it is 1215. So I'm, I'm going to, we got to turn the corner here. We got to turn the corner here. She was disheveled. She was scared. Dressed in dirty clothes. Missing her dental work. Hair shorn nearly to her scalp. For four days, she had wandered through the streets of LA. There was no director there to yell, Cut! There was no makeup artist to run out there and and, and put a little more dirt on her face. Oh, she was a movie star, all right. Her name was Margaret Kidder. She was the Lois Lane in the uh, Superman movies, late 70s and 80s. But in that moment, she had forgotten who she was. And she literally wandered around the streets of Los Angeles aimlessly and being abused. See, she forgot who she was, and so she lived in that moment less than the life she could. Now, if you, if you read that story, yes, there was mental illness involved there, and that's real. But the illustration holds, doesn't it? Who you think you are determines what? How you will live. Identification determines direction. And that's why when we, when we encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we encourage fellow Christians about saying no to sin and yes to righteousness, 
And we need to do that with each other. We should always first and foremost remind them of who they are in Christ. That's what Paul does. Now, make no mistake about it. Paul, Paul says a lot of stuff. He said, y'all ought to stop sleeping around. Right? Y'all ought to stop slandering each other. Huh? Stop talking so filthy like that, he says. Right? Stop cheating. Right? He says in 1 Corinthians, do not, be, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor drunkards. And he goes on, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say what? Such were some of you. Any of us can mess up and do those things, but that's no longer our, our identity, right? And so he, has, he does say, stop doing certain things, and why don't you start loving each other a little better? Why don't you start forgiving a little bit more and bearing with each other and, and submitting and obeying? He does say all that, but if that's all he said, that would just be short-term behavior modification. Like I said last week, that might get you to 2.07 p.m. this afternoon. Maybe it'll get you to Monday, but it sure won't get you to Friday, right? Now, Paul, now Paul's not after behavior modification, right? Paul is after inside-out, holistic life transformation. And that's why he reminds them of their new and true identity. Now, let me hit this real quick. He now compels them and calls them to a new direction. You are in Christ. So now set your mind on Christ. That's the logic right there. Now, I don't have enough time to begin, especially now, to unpack those phrases that you'll find in the latter part of verse 1 and verse 2. Let me read them again real quick. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. And then verse 2, set your mind on things that are above. Again, I I don't have time to pack. Let me me just give you, I think, four pretty significant implications about that. Number one, in all this seeking and setting, let's not forget who we're setting our mind on. Not golden streets, right? But Christ, his kingdom, his values, his agenda. Basically says where Christ is. Why does he tell us that? Because he's saying ultimately, that's who you need to seek. Seek Christ. Second of all, both those verbs, seek and set, are in the imperative. That is, they are commands. It ain't optional. If you were to read a job description of a Christian, it would be this. Set your mind on things above. Seek the things that are above. Third of all, it is in the continuous tense. In other words, you know, I think I'll seek Christ tomorrow. No, 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 no. It is continuous all our days. In blessing and in affliction. And then finally, fourth of all, I'm just going to state the obvious. This starts where? Now, we ought to present our bodies, all of us. But again, he says, set your mind because Paul gets the concept. Thinking drives what? Living. Belief drives what? So it starts here. You're thinking. Listen, if you don't want to change. You may not be in Christ, all right? I, I wouldn't be a faithful friend of pastor. Now, sometimes as Christians, we don't give a rip about change, though, right? Isn't that true? We go through dead seasons and dormant seasons. And, and if you're there, there's really, I can't, I can't do anything for you. 
I was talking to a, a coach this week. You can have a player with great talent, great gifting from God. But if they don't try, they ain't trying to learn and submit and obey and put out and all that. All the, you could have the best coaches in the world won't. You could have Herb Brooks. It won't make a difference. He got rid of people, actually, that didn't want to get with his program. I'm not saying we're going to get rid of anybody. I'm just making the point. <laughs> that if you, don't, if you don't want to change, there's, there's nothing going to be done, right? But if somewhere in there, maybe you are having a hard season right now. Life's going to give you a lot of hard seasons, right? If you're in Christ, somewhere in there, there is a desire to change. There is. And hopefully the word of God is just fanning those embers just a little bit. You know what? Yeah, I don't want to be in this mess anymore. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if that's you, and I think that's every Christian. I want to close with giving you two tips. Two pieces of advice that I think are faithful to the word of God. Number one. Take responsibility for directing your mind to Christ. Take responsibility for directing your mind to Christ. You say, oh man, there are so many thoughts that run through my mind. How how can I do that? And I read somewhere that there are between 50 and 70,000 individual thoughts that run through a person's mind every day. Do they have a thoughtometer? I don't know how they figure that out, but whatever. A lot. And it is true that our mind is a competitive field more competitive than the acceptance rate at Howard or Harvard. That's the way it is. Thoughts are always competing for our attention, right? Always. From trivial thoughts. What shirt should I wear today? I think about that all the time. You can tell that, right? I have stepped it up a little bit. Okay, but... Yeah. But seriously, trivial thoughts. Like, did I, did I turn off the coffee maker? Somebody's going to run out of that church right now, right? Um, did I cancel that free seven-day subscription, trial subscription, right? We're just, we're just hit with all kinds of thoughts all the time at the craziest times. And then we're, of course, hit with serious and weighty thoughts, right? What's going to happen to him or her and all this and that? New York City has been called the city that never sleeps. That could be said about our minds, They never sleep. Always thinking. And I I get it. it, it, It's really hard to control the thoughts that come into our mind, isn't it? It's hard. I get it. I I wish we could do better. But you, you, you can't control necessarily every thought that floats down the stream of your mind. But what you do have a say in is which ones you choose to set anchor on. He says, set your mind. It's like almost nautical language. Throw the anchor on that one, right? Keep that one. In fact, call that to mind. Draw that to you, right? So we, listen, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. You can't be passive in this. You must take responsibility for driving your mind to Christ. Take responsibility for directing your mind to Christ. And maybe, maybe you would have to acknowledge, I think more about what I look like, what shirt I'm going to wear, than who I'm looking at, Christ. Maybe it's just confessing that, 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 that I, I have idolatrous tendencies in my heart that keep me, because who, who's your God? The God is whatever you look to most, right? And we all 
look in the wrong places. We've got to take responsibility for directing our minds to Christ. Second of all, we have to learn the art of talking back to ourselves. People say, talking to yourself is madness. Uh Uh-uh. It's actually the first sign of spiritual health. Psalm 43, verse 5. The psalmist is talking to himself, right? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's talking back to himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote an incredible book, an incredible book called Spiritual Darkness, in which that's the theme of his book, talking back to yourself with truth. He said, we spend far too much time listening to ourselves and far too little time talking back to ourselves. So everyone here, you're a preacher. You ought to be a preacher. You ought to be the best preacher you know. You're always preaching truth back to yourself because the world, the flesh and devil are going to tell you a whole bunch of lies, right? Every day, from the minute your, floor hits, your foot hits the floor. And I want you to note something here, and I'm not going to develop this for the sake of time. But you have a divine conspirator with you to do this. You have the Holy Spirit. He's called the comforter. He's called a witness. He's called an advocate. And in John 14, 26, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit would bring to your remembrance those things he had taught you. And the word there is fascinating. It's the, it's the prefix bring in the word memory. So what the Holy Spirit does is he reaches back into your memory and he puts it back up front. He takes it from back burner to front burner, which should tell you about getting into the word of God, the saturation piece, right? Now, I just saw it this morning, now this afternoon, I guess, to make the point that thinking drives living, right? That belief drives behavior. Who you think you are will always make its way into how you live. It determines how you live. Identification determines direction. For good or for bad. Who here has heard of Lyle Alzado? He was a great NFL linebacker. Again, I'm dating myself with him. His, the biggest team he played for were, were the uh, Oakland Raiders. They were bad boys. They were the bad boys before the bad boys. <laughs> Pistons. Alzado is a very fascinating story. Ever since I went off social media, I've done two things. I've read a lot more and I've watched a lot more documentaries, which I don't know if that second part's good, but I have. Okay. And I watched this one last week. I just came across it. Alzado grew up in a home that was just a really bad home. His dad told him unkind things to say it lightly. One time he actually had to, he had to punch his dad. He might have knocked him out because he was assaulting his mom. So he wasn't getting much at all, any affirmation at home, right? He found, though, that he got affirmation in football. He, was a, he wasn't even a star in high school. He was just an average player. He, he, he went to one school, Yankota State. It no longer exists. It's now a prison. Um, he wasn't highly recruited. Um, but he was a hard worker, and he, he, he was aggressive. Well, he said, you know, I get a, Looking back, he said, I find affirmation in what people say about my football play. So he started taking steroids. And this is before they were really testing. 
And he, he ends up rising through the ranks uh, by a chance encounter. A scout comes out to Yankota State. He gets signed, and he, and he plays 15 years in the NFL. And you can Google. He, he's vicious, ferocious, because steroids actually make you not just aggressive but, but mean. Um, he actually tried to come back when he was 41, four years after he retired. He took H, human growth hormone, from a cadaver uh, from Sweden, some kind of thing they were doing. And he didn't, he didn't make it that time, but two years later, he was diagnosed with inoperable brain cancer. And Lyle Alzado said that he believes those nearly 20 years of taking steroids and steroid-like things is what gave him the cancer. But he found peace of sorts. He confessed to everybody. He didn't need to do that. People kind of whispered, does Alzado take steroids? But he, but he actually went on record as saying, I have taken steroids. That's how I've achieved. He said, I lied. You can see the cover of SI right there. And, he, and, there's this, and I was listening to him speak. One of the last things he said well, uh, before he died was, um, this is really hard for me. Once my body was this, and now it's this. But I don't feel inferior any longer because this is who I am. Found a measure of redemption, Alzado did. Rescued he was from, the, from, from what fueled destructive thinking. He didn't know who he could be. Now, he wasn't rescued from the bad consequences of steroids. that led to the brain cancer. Christ died to rescue us from the consequences of wrong thinking leading to wrong thinking. In other words, the penalty of sin. And if you're in him, that penalty is no longer on you. But it's not just that the penalty is no longer on you. The power has been broken. And some of you need to start believing that. You died to the power of sin. You were raised in newness of life. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. And you will be an expression of his glory. And he wants you to be more of an expression of his glory right here in the gritty now. Huh? Now, I'm going to forget this this week. I'm going to get ticked off. I'm going to, you know, we need each other to remind, right? Home groups, home groups, you're going to be walking out ways we can direct our minds to Christ. We're going to be trying to flesh this out. But I'm certain the Lord was speaking to somebody or somebody's here. Huh? Yeah. And we're going to have a prayer team right up here. And you, you come and ask for prayer. Maybe you need to confess something to a friend, a parent, a spouse, whatever. Right? We're going to stand and we're going to sing. Please don't phone out and device out. One of the things that we can do during singing is we take these truths of who we are and we drive them deeper in our soul by the power of the Spirit, right? Yeah. So let's throw ourselves into this, to this song. Let's make it a punctuation point to what God has been telling us, that identification determines direction. Father, I pray that you would use these words. Delete anything that wasn't according to truth and put the pedal to the metal on everything that was. I pray for the person here who thinks that they have shanked it too much, disobeyed too much, done whatever too much to believe that you could ever cleanse. You are in the business of cleansing the repentant. And I pray 
that person would know your arms being wrapped around them right now by the Spirit of God. Come confess, young man. Come confess, older man. Come confess, young girl. I pray, Father, that your Spirit would move even more, even more, as we stand to our feet and sing to you, the one who's given us a new and true identity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.